Welcome to the Fish Tea Podcast, where we talk about LGBTQ politics, pop culture, growing up in the Caribbean, life in the diaspora, and the work it takes to sustain love, life, and laughter in the midst of all the white noise. I'm Glenroy. I'm Kareem. And I'm Lanvel. We're giving you everything, honey. Get into this mug. We're serving you a hot cup of fish tea. Bottoms up. Bottoms up. <laughs> well, as I could see Kareem, <laughs> because he <in> freeze. <laughs> really? I don't know what to come in. <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess bottoms up. <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, oh my God! God. Like, the scholars are in. The scholars are in. Why, why, Landman and Kareem? Um, uh, to be honest, I just there. I soak up the sun. Um, I was on the beach last week. I was in Scotland last week. I was on the beach. Today's the, the official start of summer, so I'll be half naked for majority of the time for about two months. This is the first time you have the half naked. You're gonna be half naked in England. Yes. So two months? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Specify for the girls. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my postdoc sister. Jesus. How's oh it my going? god. I struggle. I don't know, I can't soak in the look of excitement because I still have so many things to do, so many deadlines that I'm trying to get done by the end of this month so that summer can really be summer for me for the first time in a long time. Um, but, you know, Shagwan push through, Shagwan push through, she has some of a tight deadline. I had to submit the dissertation by the end of this month, before the end of this month, because my postdoc starts in July. So it needs to be like on record with the graduate school by June 30th. And there's a whole process of doing that because then you have to figure out if you want to have it published immediately and blah, blah, blah. And then people are hitting me up, asking for a copy. And you know, I kind of feel like, um, self-conscious, but look at dissertation and writing. So I come through for make sure say it ready for public consumption. But I'm um, I'm hanging in there. I'm kind of basking in it. It's still, still settling in and soaking in, but you know what? Well, push and go through. How's our international um, activist or leader, fearless leader? How's she doing? <laughs> well, you know, well, first of all, the room cool right now, but you know, we give thanks and praises because the hotel master she she not really go on with so much, but you know, we move. I actually have a panel tomorrow, um, so I'm at the Commonwealth Heads of Government. Uh, meeting, well, by the time the episode promoted, would have done. No, I'd actually still be here because I have another thing going to on Saturday. Um, but I'm in Rwanda, you know, soaking up the motherland. It's a very interesting experience. You know, I plan to serve the girls' looks while I'm here still, because you know. Um, and so it's just been an opportunity to kind of engage with different activists across the world, but also with different world leaders and things like that. And also people that from Jamaica who are here as well that I know. I plan to do a few tours when I have a little bit of free time so I can see, you know, different parts of Rwandan culture, especially um, the, the Genocide Museum. I definitely want to see the memorial and everything that, you know, they've done in Rwanda to kind of commemorate I don't know if I that's the word, but to kind of give space to the fact that there was a tragic past that they've worked on addressing. So I'm very excited for that. But I guess there's something else, but I forget. No, I lied. I remember now. So they're having pride here in Rwanda. I'm going to get to go and look at the party in Rwanda. The girls gave. The girls, it was a moment, right? And look at that solid clear. I'm going to remind myself, say, me really like catch up in that age. Because after too bubble and wide, but it's tired. The back sheen didn't make it. So this is where we, this is where we are. And I think it is full time. I decided I could just stay home and knit and have the young girls run the place. Hang up the key. Well, <laughs> well, Glenn, as you're in Rwanda, and as you say, go to the party party, we can't make you left without the tweet or this, what um, Soel did say. We want to hear it. I want to hear the meaning behind it. Which tweet? Me, you, and the three Batman, them never they go make it out ah! to Rwanda. 
<laughs> we can't say it from the podcast. We said the vibes not them, girl. Okay, so we'll get we'll get a, we'll get another sit down. We'll get a sit down to 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 deep dive into that. the tweet. Friend, I actually found it back the other day because I said in honor of the fact that they are going to run down. Remember these voice notes. Well, I'll send y'all the full voice note. Just know it's my favorite thing to listen to whenever I need a pick me up. But with that said and the excitement done, let's move along <laughs> to the topic at hand. Glanville. Okay, listeners. Um, today we'll be talking to Dr. Andrew Campbell. So Karim isn't the only doc in the room. Dr. Andrew Campbell. <laughs> Um, you might know him from um, his social as Dr. Um, ABC. He's a Jamaican, also Canadian. Um, he's an educator, an author, and a motivational speaker. And we'll be getting into his book um, published in 2018, The Invisible Student in the Jamaican Classroom. Welcome, Dr. Campbell. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I was just sitting here listening to you three and smiling because, you know, when you introduce yourself, you talk about the, the fact that this podcast is about love, laughter, love, love, life, laughter. And um, it's important that we have these kind of exchanges. It's important that even during pride, understanding that it's formed from resistance. We have those moments when we enjoy the glitter. And, and I always say the disc dust or the glitter that comes with it. So I, I just want to say, you know, continue living. It's important. Hashtag for me is Black Joy. And, I'm, I, and I can hear that. And I'm very pleased. I also want to say congratulations to the new Dr. Karim. Can, um, I see it all out there. And you have to bask in it. You must bask in it. It is a journey. It is a work. It is a, a process. And you have come to that place where you have completed that part of the journey. And you should bask in that. So with that, I say congratulations again. And good to join you, you two, you three, sorry, three of you in conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank and you. before we continue, I want to say, even though we plan to scandal them, our fourth member, M, who was really <laughs> the person who was pushing, was pushing for this episode, um, sent their uh, regrets for not being able to make it. They read the book years ago and loved it. I really wanted to be a part of this conversation. But Em is out here making sure there's queer inclusion in different academic spaces so we can fight them too tough. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> um, I, I think before we, we even jump into the content of the book, um, I think for me, I'd want to kind of, um, we're used to the single story of growing up queer in Jamaica. Um, and I'd want you to speak about your own experience of growing up queer. I know um, you made mention of the fact that you didn't grow up seeing um, Black gay men who were successful, um, and the, the only gay men that you grew up seeing were men on TV, possibly white um, queer men. Um, and what was, what was your own experience of growing up queer in Jamaica? I, I want to say thanks for, for introducing the idea of and disrupting the idea of the single story, right? Because that's happened quite a bit where people say, when you're from Jamaica, how is this? And I always remind persons that, you know, we come from the same island, but there are so many different experiences. And so mine may be different from yours and where you grew up. And I grew up in Portmore in Waterford. I grew up in a community. Um, it wasn't as considered in a city like it is considered now, right? So I grew up where years ago when most of the community was working professionals, especially nurses, teachers, the, um, um, policemen. And you grew up in those, and I grew up in, a, in a, an amazing family, my mom and my dad, sister and my brother, going to church, you know, Sunday school, that kind of stuff. So I grew up in that kind of space where church was a very, very influential in my life. And, you, you know, you learn to love, quote unquote, love the Lord. And then at, at a certain point in your life, when you start to hit puberty, and things start to change, you start to realize how different you are. And that different in church is equal to bad or demonic or you're not made right or Jesus made a mistake and all that kind of narrative. 
And from that, from me, you know, especially I didn't understand it when I was younger, but since I got older, I, I realized how much trauma that did and how much that impacted my self-esteem and that impacted, you know, growing up. And, but I'm also quite amazed in, in how much that did not impact certain parts of me because at a very early age, I learned how to resist and advocate for myself. And that is why my, I have this personality. It has shaped me from an early, early age in how to fight for myself. I didn't have the word advocate. I had the word fight. And I've always been that child who would fight for myself. I've always learned to defend myself from a very, very early age. So my experience was, you know, church, very um, low socioeconomic um, background. I grew up poor, period. I grew up poor. And I've learned now that a poor Jamaican gay experience, an inner city Jamaican gay experience is different from a rural Jamaica gay experience, different from a, a high socioeconomic status going to a private school or certain spaces. So for me, it, it, the intersections and, 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 and the things that, that intersect, so to speak, was you know, poverty and, and church and growing up in a certain kind of community. So that was my experience. That was really my experience growing up. And then um, I left church. I started to discover, you know, a community. And I found community, gay community, about the age of about 22, 23. And I started to realize that there were other ways for me to exist, even in Jamaica. Though, of course, it has to be hidden. But I found a family. I found friends. I found a community in Jamaica and of course I learned how to navigate that com that community and my home community and church community so I did a quite a bit of navigating I think I'm a good navigator of these spaces I if I may yeah, yeah if I may um I would love to hear about you kind of coming into your own at that age, particularly because now I think, especially as younger queer people, um, not to carbon date you, but as younger queer people, we might take for granted all the spaces that exist for us to show up in now. And I'd love to hear about what it was like um, when you were in your kind of early twenties in Jamaica, finding queer spaces, where would you go? How would you know about them? Because I also think it's important to document that part of the story of queer, you know, queer Jamaican life. Absolutely, absolutely. And my first experience of realizing that there are spaces existing for us was when I was at Micah Teachers College. So I was in Micah Teachers College and I met other um, students who, of course, we know each other. You know, we have to say, you know, we know each other and our, our radars, you know, that time we don't know if it was a radar, but it was good. So literally, I must tell you, this is a very funny story. The very, very very first day I walked into Micah Teachers College, the very first day I met four persons who were gay. And by the end of the night, I had met four persons who were gay. And that for me was major because it was like, oh my God, there's, there are people like me and they exist, but you get to see them and get to understand and they are different experiences. So some of them were, were more exposed than I was. And so you were invited to spaces and parties at the time. And so of course, church was a big thing still some, for me. So now it's a sneaking out and trying to navigate certain spaces. And, you know, just a sneaking out has always been what we do. You know, we call it navigate now, but it started out with seeking out. And so you'd go to these parties, invited to a party up in the hills, so to speak. And you'd wear, you know, one clothes on the street. <laughs> I laugh when I remember those things. And people are still doing that, by the way. Let me let the listeners know that people are still doing that. And as a matter of fact, I have met Canadians right in Canada here, the, the free, free LGBTQ place that I have to do that because of the community they are coming from. So I had to really put that in that, you know, we have to be very careful how sometimes we have come to a place of access and freedom. And we think that that is, open to everyone. So right here in Toronto, where I live, I know LGBTQ folks who are still doing that, what I call old Jamaican navigating because the community they live in, they have to navigate that as well. And of course, it's predominantly Black Caribbean community. That's a conversation I think we should have another day to see how that 
I was going to say dirty, dirty ideas, but I'm, I'm not going to say that. Um, how some of these um, um, oppressive practices that we have in the Caribbean, or when we migrate, we take them with us, and they they find root and space even in places like this. And so, going back to the to the story of going to those spaces earlier on, I was amazed. Everything was new to me. I, I mean, I was excited. You go to a place and you realize, oh my God, everybody in here Batman. Like everybody in a gay, everybody in here. And we were using the word, you know, gay at that time. We were using the word Batman, right? Are you funny? What the word, the word, you know, just all of us and all of us are Batman and all of us funny. And it was amazing for me to feel that freedom and dance. And I was always a good dancer, I'm still a good dancer. And I would just live my best life. And then we come back down and we change and we go back to our homes and as if nothing happened. But but I want to say those that feeling of that celebration would linger on for days. For days we'll talk about it in school or with our friends. And we'd have a look to each other that says, yes, yes, we did that. And it still lingered on. And so so for me, we created those spaces. But another thing I want to importantly say is that we also created spaces for ourselves. And I remember earlier on, and that's why I'm very intentional about how I create space for LGBTQ, especially men. Earlier on, we'd go to somebody's house. And when you go to that person's house, you realize there were 11 guys there and all of us were gay. And we got to talk because it wasn't a party. It was just a gathering or we just chilling out. And so you get to cook and eat together and talk and you get to talk about life. That's where you get to meet guys and meet persons and introduced to music. It was more than just about guys. I was introduced to music and singers and books. I would never forget that's where somebody introduced um, um, Elin Harris books to me. And I end up reading all of Elin Harris books. And so it was a space of we created our own spaces and then we took those spaces into other places. I remember hanging out into Jamrock. I don't know if you all know about Jamrock, but Jamrock was a restaurant in, 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 in New Kingston. Um, that when you go there, you could count quite a bit of our people there. And you could be a little bit more yourself. You never to be so, so, so alert because you felt a little bit of Safety, I don't think the safety is the right word, but you felt a little bit of community in the space because you could look around and you could see at least 11 or 12 gay men that you know at any one time. And so we created spaces and we disrupt in those spaces as well. We were ourselves. And so that is how, you know, those spaces were important to me at that early age. Uh, and um, before the others come in, I just, that's um, I love here, the book of up here, and I love your all. We did fine, we weird. Back in the day, and how? Um, let's be very yeah. clear. Those those ways of being and navigating paved the way for what we have now. So I mean, Absolutely. I just was getting chills listening to Absolutely. you, and also, mega market down what you said about diaspora communities because I've been had this theory for years about how when you're in a diaspora co community from the Caribbean, there's a crystallization of homophobia. But oh, I want yeah. to hear it from you. I want, I want to hear it from yourself and probably some other um, colleagues and friends that I have in different parts of the world to hear like similarities of experience. Although I think we discussed it um, early on in probably season one or two, but I think it requires further ventilation. But like, I shut my mouth now, enough for myself. Karim, <laughs> um, you have any questions? No, I would say my question until we got to the book because the book what? is my... I mean, we, we could what? go to we we could go to um the book, Kareem. Um, not sure what your question um is, but and I I I want to ask about in the same way I asked about your own experience um as a queer person growing up in Jamaica, um your own experience um navigating as you um said the Jamaican classroom. And I also know you went on at well at the high school of you went to an all boys school. Um, so what was yeah. that experience like? <sighs> yeah, I breathed just hard, right? <laughs> well, let me take it from the beginning. Well, so I went to Independent City All Age School. 
and um, navigating that was, you know, what happened at school at that age, I think it's sad, it's very, very sad, but we think it's normal. And just like you saying that I just, I don't know if I was prepared emotionally, because I just felt my emotion just shifted. Um, but I was in grade one, I was six. And I remember I liked boys, I was six. I mean, nobody teach you how to like boys. So that's why, you know, this idea and this argument about, you know, you grow up in a house, whatever, whatever. I can say, and I think I need to say this for those who are listening. I grew up in a house with a mom and a dad and a dad was a taxi man, hardcore dad who loved me to death. A dad who I go to beach with, Forum Beach, almost every single Sunday morning before I go to Sunday school early, go to buy fish. I get to swim. I know what it is, sit in my dad's lap, sit on his neck, go in the water, drive in his car, hug my dad. So the idea that these, you know, these children are effeminate or whatever because they have no father, that's, that's ridiculous, foolishness. I have an amazing dad and a big bad dad as well. Dad, a kind of dad that you would be scared of. You know, the neighbors would be scared of, not me. That was my favorite person. It was my dad. And so going to school, you know, I just knew I had these feelings and, you know, that happened in school. You allow, you know, you, you're taught called sissy, you know, you, you, you try to shake that name, but you can't shake the name because everybody knows you're a sissy. And so, you know, you, you play with the dolls, you do all that kind of stuff. So school was, school was, was elementary school or primary school wasn't that bad because as I said in the book, and I think a lot of persons shared is that when you had girlfriends, so your friends were mainly girls. And those girls, once they love you, they form a posse with you. And so I had a posse. I had a good set of posse. Funny enough, one of those same girls I still talk to today, and I haven't seen them in over 20-something years, but we're on Facebook. And so I had good girls that I played dollhouse with, and I had good neighbors who were also girls that I played with. So that kind of protection, quote-unquote, from the girls happened, right? In high school, I went to the Kinson College. And I must say, and I said it, I've said it a million times, and I said it publicly, um, grade seven, grade eight, and grade nine was my worst time in school period in my entire schooling was grade seven, eight, and nine at Kingston College. And if you ask me right now, if I could erase any part of my schooling, it would have been grade seven, eight, and nine at Kingston College. And um, I don't talk about it much. I talk about it in the book. I don't talk about it much. Um, because I still have a certain level of anger. And the more I, the older I get and the more I do this work, I realize teachers miss opportunities to say to our students, I see you. I, I see a lot of our teachers miss opportunities to protect and to create a more healthy school culture and climate for our students. And I've always said when I do workshops, when I do speaking and giving, especially in the area of 2S LGBTQI plus in Canada here. I always say to them, for me in grade seven at the age of, at grade seven, the age of 11, I was quite young, 10 plus 11. All I wanted was a teacher to say to the other boys, stop. That's all I wanted. I wanted nothing else. I didn't want any magic or anything extra. What all I wanted was for an adult in the room to just say to the boys, stop. I know that didn't happen a lot at, K, at, at school. And so for me, I have an issue with, and as I talk so much about educators' role in equity, diversity, inclusion, I am very big on our role as educators. I said, oh, because of course, I became a teacher myself. So school for me was not good. You know, going to the bathroom on, on PE day was like going to hell. I mean, I've never been to, I don't know what the bitch Satan is doing down there. Hope I can say the word bitch, right? But I don't know what's going on, but I could tell you from what you read about it, this was this was horrible, and um and then you you didn't have enough friends at that time because you were you were learning each other, and but so I found community, and so grade ten and eleven, grade ten and eleven was different. In Casey, I found community. I can tell you right now, in one class at Casey, in one of my class, there were six of us who I know was girly. Let's use the word girly because none of us knew point blank that we were gay at that time. They're talking about 1991, 1990. So it's a long time I'm talking about where we weren't defining ourselves that kind of way. We know we just, the words girly and we like, some of us, we like, and we like boys. Some of us were girls, not all of us. And we like boys. Today, I could tell you, every single one of us 
are now openly fabulously gay. Some is married with family. And uh, when I say married, I mean married for a man. That is with their family and living their best life. And of course, I'm over here living my best life as well. And so I found, I found a community again. Let's go back to that in grade 10 and grade 11. And I also realized because of my, my talent, I, you know, acting, dancing, singing, whatever, I also found space. And they, so we end up performing, we end up doing stuff. And so we end up having a community. So at grade 10 and grade 11 weren't that bad. I also come into my, I also grew into myself, into my body. I am, I am a gorgeous man, but I know in grade 10 and 11, I was a gorgeous young man. And so I also, you know, grew in that part was important that I, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't self-conscious about, you know, how I looked because that doesn't make it an extra burden. Um, so those things helped, those things helped. And I was also quite gifted and intelligent as well. So those things helped as well from, to make grade seven, to grade, elect, grade 10 and 11 easier. But school was, my education experience was, was, was quite challenging. And let me just wrap this up by saying, and that also went to Micah Teachers College. I had challenges in college. And I also went to Jamaica Theological Seminary to do my bachelor's degree. And I had challenges there as well because I had different kind of challenges. And I think one day I'd love to come back to talk about the challenges as, as, as being in university and not just about being bullied because now I'm not being bullied, but I'm being impacted in many ways because dating is happening and men are in the class who are straight and they are giving certain energy and you're responding, but then it's a private energy, not a public energy. And you have to decide on those things. So there's a lot of navigating. I think, you know, as LGBTQ people, we constantly keep navigating these, these places and spaces and that can be quite tiring as well. So yeah, that's what, that's what it's for school for me. Um, no, somebody said me I should talk more, but <laughs> I, I, I just want to say, um, especially because, you know, I finally got that full story now. And I, and I always remember the first time I brought up the question about your time at Casey with you, the reaction, and, and it, it sat with me. And I, and I think I've said this to you since, yeah. uh, how yes, powerful yeah. that moment was. But just mm -hmm. to also say it on record here, um, that that moment concretized why I ended up doing the Forty Queen picture a couple of years um, mm -hmm. back. It was in that moment that I decided that something else had to be done because what that moment told me um, as an activist who went through Casey, they didn't necessarily have certain experiences there, but understood um, that mm -hmm. those experiences happened to, still to this day and witnessed it, it happening to other students while I was there, that this is an issue that has continued throughout time and there needed to be somebody that said that disrupted this idea that queer people, queer students are not there, don't belong there. Um, and so I'm not, but thank you for, I guess, in sharing, just giving me that moment. And the only spark I can, I, I can say now is that when you talk about teachers saying to you um, that I see you, um, yeah. I will say is that there was a, there's this one teacher that did that for me, not not yeah. in the obvious way, but did that for me in such yes. a way that made yeah. made certain things just easier and better for me. Um, and yeah. so I really it resonates with me when you say that's all really wanted from them. So yeah, but I jump in there. there. No, I jump in there quickly what you just said because. When I do this, when I do this workshop on this work about ICU, I always say to people, it is not a literal, like, and I, I think you you got it. It's the little ways, just the little, little ways, the in-passing ways. I have said to people, the way a teacher can put their hands on your shoulder, and I've used this in a very deep spiritual moment, the way a teacher rests his hands or hands on your shoulder as a student while passing your desk to say to you in, a, in more than one ways, I see you, it's powerful. The way they ask you to read, your time to read, Andrew, the way they compliment your reading, you know, the way they talk about your work or your project, the little ways that bring you forward and bring you out of deficit, you know, and teachers have that power. I always say 
teachers are magicians. We have that power out to pull our students out of deficit. And I really want to appeal to all educators listening that you can do this in intentional ways. And I do understand that as an educator, especially in a Jamaican classroom, you don't want to, which is sad, you don't want to feel like you're defending the little gay boy, right? Because of course they turn on you. I get it. You know, I've got, I've, I, I see that, but there are many little ways in which to do that. And I just want to say, you know, the other day, I, you know, I don't use the word trigger quite often, like people use it quite a bit. The other day I read, somebody sent me a video and was making a round on, on WhatsApp. And I think it was at KC, a boy being teased and bullied by another group of boys. And I literally watched it and turned off my phone and I was in my bed and I, I, I could not believe my body, my physical body reaction to the video. And I was like, wow. You know, wow. You know, just so you know, I've left KC, what, a hundred years ago. I think I've been back to that campus once. And I can say publicly, I, I'm not interested in doing anything with or for KC. Um, I'm still, I'm not, I'm over them, but it's just a bad place for me. And I, I'm the kind of personality I am. I don't believe in bad relationships. I never encourage i'm sure you've seen the post i make on social media i don't encourage bad relationships at all and so for me i guess if i ever go back there one day or speak one day it would be quite something else and it would be intentional of why i would be going there why i would be speaking because these things they do linger on so yeah thank you for that absolutely important it's interesting you mentioned kind of like some of the things that came up for you and kind of was inspired. I'm getting feedback. That kind of inspired you um, as you went through this book. And as I was reading parts of it, I saw myself, right? I was at one point or another, the invisible student in the Jamaican classroom. Um, as you spoke about the, um, you know, the ways in which teachers could, say, I see you without saying I see you. I started to reflect on how fortunate I was to have those moments for myself. Um, and I'm thinking about like the different ways that teachers really kind of affirmed me without saying, you know, I see you and I I, I recognize you for who you are or so on. Because I mean, it's not something that we, we openly discuss, but just those ways. But now I'm curious about the ways, because um, as I was reading it too, of course, it's, a, it, it's there are moments of kind of like, sadness but there are moments of when you hear especially the interview participants talk about their own journey and he's like yes those moments of resilience those moments of joy um despite yeah. all of those things I, I i'm curious to know like what was that process like as you that one conducted those interviews but then sat down to you know make meaning of some of those things or to put it in this book format so that we could read it and enjoy it and put forth the charge to educators and educators and policymakers and so on and so forth like what was that process like for you? Because I can't imagine, like there are certain things that I think about writing. When I think about kind of like the emotional piece of it, um, I start to get kind of like, um, you know, I start to back away from it. I'm curious, like what was yes. your process doing all yes. these things and kind of like, how did you yes. remain committed to like bringing it to fruition? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. You know, you're, you're so correct. You know, when you hear people on TV, talk about making a movie or writing a, or doing an album or writing a book and how much it helped them and the process. Sometimes you just think, oh yeah, you're saying that because you know it's cute to say, but it's the truth. You know, I have had focus groups in my in my house, in my in my apartment. And it became a moment. Like one person speaking, everybody else is either crying or quiet. You know, or one person shared a joke and everybody burst out laughing so hard. And when everybody is gone and I'm going back through the notes and the, the stuff, I have had maybe, I have had quite a bit of moments when I cry through in the process. Because you cry for two reasons, because you see other person's pain, but you also cry when you realize, God, you know, we made it. We, many of us, we made it. And through all of that, we came through. So the process took me to different, 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 different spaces, really different, different spaces. And I tell you something, tell you something that's very, very important. 
um, when I was when the book was published, one of the things that happened that was quite surprising, and I know I, I have work to do, is immediately after I had about five or six persons inboxing me, saying to me, they got my book, they read my book, and they would like to share their story with me. And I would never forget it. One of the persons was was a Jamaican living in Canada that I wasn't sure about his sexuality. I, I, I always like, yours are wrong, but I'm not sure, you know? And he said to me, this book helped me to find my, myself and to be bold enough to say who I am. I think now he's, he's married and, you know, quote unquote, living his best life, right? So the process of writing was powerful, but the process of listening was even more powerful. And I think doing this book, I learned to listen more because I, I don't think I was the best listener. I don't think I am the greatest listener in the world. Um, but I learned to listen more because as people were telling their stories, I also understood from research itself, and I'm bringing in research ethics here, Kareem, is how to listen to persons and how to not interrupt, how to listen, but also how to listen with a certain kind of, certainly kind of a skill, right? And so I listened to their voices, but I also listened to the pause. I listened to the silence. I listened to times when they took a while to, to say the word. I listened to how they want to go back to a question to change their answer. You know, I listened to persons who after I gave them the script to do um, a kind of member check-in to say, here's a quote I'm going to use. Would you want this code to be used? I listened to how they asked me to even adjust the course, the, the, the code, or how to, 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 to make sure I keep certain things in it that I may want to even erase to protect them. They would say, no, 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 I want you to leave it like that. And so there, it was really a process of learning so many things about how do we do qualitative research. I mean, it's not a qualitative research book, Right, it's a, it's a conversation I'm having, but of course, you borrow from qualitative research the ideas of listening, entering a space, exiting a space, honoring people's voice, and I think that is the most important thing. I do plan to continue to write a, 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 a follow up to this book because so many people want to share their story, and we do get it. Not everybody's going to have a book to be published, and so honoring and respecting those voices was something powerful in the process for me and and i'll close with this and realizing another thing carrie but i think was a big aha moment for me was realizing that uh, other people had a quite different experiences from me i remember people telling me about their uncle and who know that they were gay and taken to places and going to places and yeah i was like wow you had a good gay childhood <laughs> i remember saying to one participant wow you had a good gay child. And he said to me, yes, my mother, my dad, and my uncles knew I was gay. And they came in and swooped in and protected me and provided space for me. But then these are people who traveled, right? I never went on a plane until I was 21. So I was stuck, quote unquote, you know, in the space. You know, these kids, these are, these are participants who went to New York during the summer. They've been, to, they've been to spaces where it was okay for them to live a little flamboyant and be a little, you know, that little cute gay boy. Yeah, I, yeah. there was no space for me to be that little cute gay boy in Jamaica when I was at home. So yeah, I get to realize and respect the various, the differences of our experiences, even when it comes to relationship and love and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it was powerful. Thanks, Karim. It was really powerful. No problem. Thank you for that. Thanks for sharing that. I, I, I want to ask, um, you, you said some things that um, resonated with me, one of them being um, PE. I remember like in high school from seventh grade, I knew I did not want to um, be caught dead doing PE. Um, and I remember I used to, we used to have a theory one week and practical and every week that we had practical, I, I would intentionally leave my PE gear um, until one time the PE um, teacher got very upset because he's like, every week you come here, you leave your gear. And it was just because I knew that I was effeminate and um, if it was running, if it was football or whatever, I couldn't actively, I couldn't participate in the way that would make me seem like the other boys. And I want to know if you think that 
talent, LGBT talent is kind of wasted um, because like, no, I consider myself a good runner, but back then I would have never done it because I didn't want to be teased. I didn't want people to say, oh, he runs like a girl or whatever. Do you, and a lot of us kind of stick to the books because that kind of help us to kind of navigate um, high school, if you're the bright one, then people will want to borrow your book, people will want to help with assignments. Do you think that outside of academia um, or academics, LGBT talent is wasted um, in, in, the high, in high school or in school in other areas that we could actively participate in? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I shared you a sad story. I always talk about, you know, I'm a storyteller. And I share many, many stories. And I share a sad story. I had a young man who was in church. And I realized, you know, he's effeminate and whatever, whatever. And I watched him grow. When I say talent, I mean talent. You call for a song, a poem, a skit, anything in church. Like he would eat it up and just leave, just leave, leave the rest for everybody else. Amazing. And when I left church, or we, as we say in Jamaica, when I backslide, um, <laughs> yes, God, when we had left church, and years after, you know, he became, he became an, a young adult. So I left church when he was a child, and he became a young adult. And I finally found him on Facebook, and I was so happy, and I said hi. And, Oh my God, this is Mr. Campbell. And this is, well, let, let Brother Campbell, because that's my name for church, right? It's Brother Campbell and blah, 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 blah. And the first thing came out of his mouth to me when he came on the phone. He said, he said, I he said, I don't sing or dance or do any of those stuff anymore. And he said it in such a accomplished way. It has never left me. I was so sad because he knew that this was the talent that he had or the display or the demonstration of his talent was what tied him to maybe, maybe call gay. He's now married and living his great best life. He's married to a woman. I guess he's straight or whatever. I'm not sure, right? But the idea that you, the, the idea that you no longer do the things that would make you amazing is an accomplishment broke my heart. And so this has happened quite a bit. You know, you know, we want, and, and, and so let me, let me, let me go back to the type, the title of the book and, and answer your question right here. So when I say the invisible student in the Jamaican classroom, that, that, that invisibility has evolved even since I published the book, because two things happen is that Society, our schools make us invisible. They force us to be invisible. That's number one, right? That's an understanding that many people have. But here's the next part of it that a lot of people do not get. And after I do a workshop or a speech, then they'll get it. Is that we also make ourselves invisible intentionally. So yes, the school make us invisible and the society make us invisible and the bullying and the classroom and all that kind of stuff. But we also wish we were invisible just like what you just said i guarantee on every single day when you go to the practical if you could just disappear then you disappear so you automatically would make yourself invisible and the ways you would do that would be watering down your gifts watering down your talent you don't want to be the little sissy boy who wins the race because you guess what you're not going to get the same kind of adulation you are not going to get the same kind of cheering. You are not going to get the same kind of admiration and respect if you won the race. And so what you do, you just come last because coming last is easy. You know, it sounds like I'm saying it from a regular place, but I can tell you my emotions are so on high right now, unexpectedly. You all pull me out. You all pull me out of my emotions on a, on a, on a Tuesday like this. Um, but yeah, because you do not want to be the star. Because being the star shines light on you. And when the light is shining on you, you are more attacked. You know what I'm saying? As an adult, no, I shine bright like a diamond, but I can handle that. And I do get the attack as well, but I can handle it. You know, I can handle it. But as a child growing up, in, you know, growing up, you don't want that attention. You don't want to win. You know, you don't want to win. So imagine 
you growing up not wanting to win or navigating the world, telling yourself, I won't win, I won't do what I'm good at because I don't want to be seen. That is some form of, whew, I don't even have the word, you have to put it in the blank, dear listeners. That's some form of shit. But that's the best word I can find right now, sorry. That's just some form of, you know, are we, are we, are we, are we, 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 we put ourselves at the back so we don't be seen because being seen is hurtful. So yes, 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 yes. There are many people who are doing it. But I want to say amen to the fact that life is changing. And the things that we have been masters and good at, I'm sure you see people on social media doing, doing skits or these influencers. And I smile sometimes because every single man on social media now seems to be in a, in a woman's costume. And I say to myself, wow, wow. Jamaica eats up all the guys who are doing female characters. You know, and I smile to myself because I know I could kill that. I could kill that. Let me, let's be frank about how gifted and talented we are. But at one point in our lives, that would be detrimental to who we are, you know? So yeah, we have hit our, we have hit our lights under a bushel, so to speak. We have dim our lights, you know, because we don't want the, the, the shame. But I'm gonna share, tell you a quick story. And I think my Casey friend here will enjoy this. This is something I'm gonna tell you because now I'm dying with laughter. In grade 11, our, we did a uh, we did a play. We did we we joined the drama group. A teacher and staff, maybe you know at that time, she decided to start a drama group, and she did this play Saint Saint Augustine. Oh my God, I remember it. Saint Augustine of Ipo. I think it's the patron saint of Kingston College, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. And in that play, we were supposed to perform that play for parents PTA day, report card day. And every parent would come and then we'd go in the chapel and we'd do the play. And in that play, <laughs> we had a scene where all of us, when I said all of us, I mean all of us were wenches. And we had to wear skirts and put our ear, put um, flowers in our ear. So in a school, an all boys school in grade 12, we, in grade 11, we did this play and a whole bunch of us were wenches and we live our best lives. We live our best lives. And then after that, a couple of months after that, we entered the National School Drama Festival. And I don't know if you know anything about what they usually would do, because we said we are, our sister school is what, St. Hughes, right? And what they would have done in the past, because we heard this from our drama teacher, they would have gotten a girl from St. Hughes who would play a female part. We all said, no, we'll play the part. And it was, it was a play where it was Henry IV. Wow, good memory, Andrew. Henry IV. And in that part, in that play, we had about five um, female roles. And we would, we almost fought, literally, physically fought for, the, for some of the parts. Because all of us by that time, you know, diva wasn't a big word, but we were, we were, we were coming to ourselves. And we wanted to express ourselves. And this was a good time to put on a dress and put on makeup and put on a wig. We literally fought for the position. Krishna got it. We hated him afterwards for that position. <laughs> so yeah, we have learned, it just occurred to me, we have learned how to dim our lights. And then we continue to learn afterwards how to navigate spaces and to become and, and come into ourselves. And the sad news is, not everybody will come into themselves, right? And so we have to encourage each other to make sure we do that. So yeah, thank you for that question. Absolutely, absolutely powerful. You know what that reminds that story reminds me of two things. I remember when we were studying in English, always English lit class, you know. I remember when we were studying in English lit, um, old story time. So for some reason I ended up at read the Miss Aggie part then. <laughs> And I decided to go commit to the character. So, of course, we get my dress. I'm a great grandmother wig. And I wear it while I read the part. And I, 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 I gave life to Miss Aggie. I remember. It was a whole moment. And then I remember now, so there was that one in grade nine. And I think it was either grade 10 or 11. We were reading Shakespeare. Um, and it was 
um, was Merchant of Venice. And the, the, there was a specific scene when Portia and Nerissa were talking about men. So, you know, I think Portia was being, uh, suitors were coming to Portia. But of course, you know, when man look you, yeah, your girlfriend and sit down and you talk about the man and man look you and all them steer about and something. And I remember me and my best friend at the time, we played the hell out of that role, those roles. Um, you know, I talked about how the man, but of course we're doing it and we're reading the Shakespearean parts. It was such a moment. I remember, you know, some of the look at, look at the table and didn't have them look at comments after. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. It, it just, it just kind of points you how we find these ways to show up as kind of queer, you know, yes. queer students. And, and so and, I and guess- for me, but for me, the Shakespeare was as you like, and I read Rosalind. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. so my question is, what was the inspiration behind writing the book in the first place? Why did you feel like these there needs to be a documentation of these stories and that these stories need to be told and shared? Thank you so much. That is an amazing question. For me, I realized, you know, when I, when I started having you know, education, right? Bachelor's degree, master's degree. I started understanding the power of education. You know, people, I think a lot of us think that going to school is to get a degree so you can get money and, and buy nice things. I mean, that's part of it, but education is powerful. Education is for more than that. And I realized that, wow, I could tell my own story because for years people have told my story for me and, and, and I'm sure people have done try if I've either done it or tried to have done it, done it for many of you, right? And they would, you know, I remember <laughs> earlier on, if somebody asked who I was, it wasn't that he's Andrew. It would be Marky Little Brother, Mr. Camberson, Mother Camberson, or the chief Max Casey, Mark, uh, Mark Campbell, Little Sister. And what, that's what was, I was teasing grade seven. Because my brother was in grade nine. When I came to Casey, my brother was in grade nine. I was in grade seven. And they used to call me Mark Campbell, little sister. So you realize that people tell your story for you in so many ways. And so I wanted to this book so I could tell my own story and tell my own truth. Because, you know, church, especially growing up in church, there's a, there's a label to, you know, I guarantee if you go up to my church right now, they have a story about who I was, why I left, and where I'm living. Because you know, if you backslide from a Pentecostal church, you're supposed to be dead, right? The, the, a Pentecostal story about a backslider would be you left church, Jesus left you, the spirit left you, you gay, you catch HIV, and you're dead. And that is a story. That is a story. I grew up in church listening about anybody who walk out to Jesus and you're gay and whatever. You know, you're the sodomite and you God strike you and you're demon person and all that kind of stuff. So I want to make sure I tell a story. I tell my story. My story. And if you realize, the story wasn't about sex. And that is, and that is one of the things that I think people need to realize. Because when they see you and talk about being gay, the first thing comes to people's mind is, you know, who you're sleeping with. You know, that is the least of our stories. Our stories is about what we eat for breakfast. It's about who our friends are, what our dreams, our ambitions, what we want to be when we grow up what we want to afford, what we want to buy, where we want to travel, what kind of houses we want to live in and cars. Those are our stories. So for some strange reason, we have boiled down LGBTQ people's story to sex, right? And so I want to tell all the different stories. And, I, and that's what I'm going to do with the, with the, with the next book is to make sure I tell all the different stories about our ambitions and our goals and our ideas and our dreams and our aspirations. So I wanted to make sure I tell my quote-unquote side of the story. And if you notice in it, I tell things that happened to me in Jamaica, you know, in church, outside of church, with neighbors. And I found a freedom in telling it, my story, because it happened to me. And there's so many things that we see, not just LGBTQ people, but many persons. We see where people have used power and privilege and access to tell somebody's story and not allowing them to tell their own story. That's why for me, I, I really admire, you know, DJ and, 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 and reggae artists who, who are storytellers in their songs. And they get to tell their story about what they grew up and how they grew up. 
And so for me, the purpose of writing the book is to tell a story, but also to appeal to educators as well, because of course I'm an educator, to say to them, we have to make sure we work at making sure the schools are safer for our, uh, our students who are othered. And so that's the purpose of writing a story, to tell, to tell my story and to help other persons to tell their stories. And guess what? There are so many more stories to tell. So many more stories to tell. So I encourage you, Karima, here you say you want to write. You should. You have you have that power as well, all of you, because I, I know all of you and I've watched all of you do the main stuff that you do. We have so many more stories we need to tell, whether it's in journals, articles, magazine, newspaper. I've seen your stories as well um, when you write in the Jamaican newspaper. We have to continue writing our version of the story because society will always have a single story of who we are. So, yeah. Let's continue writing our stories. That's powerful. Um, I don't really have questions, but just some things that stood out to me as I was reading. I know it's big on education, but I love how, as you wrote, right, there were these moments where, I'm gonna say you called everybody in. It wasn't just a traditional educator or the teacher, but you talked about the Sunday school people, talk about adults and caregivers, teachers. And I highlighted this for some reason because it stood out to me as you were talking about effeminate children. And you said, what these boys need are adults, caregivers, teachers, guidance counselors, administrators, Sunday school teachers, community leaders, child and youth workers and other invested stakeholders to offer them affirmation. That was so powerful to me, because I was like, yes, this is yeah. a book about classroom. And it'd be so quick for people to like, you know, um, remove themselves because it didn't apply to them. But I just love how you use those moments to call everybody in and how at the end of the chapter, you are able to put more like these call to action, not little, because there were nothing little about them, but these call to actions and moments to pause and reflect and to really think about yeah. how, um, they were challenging the stereotypes and, and, and challenging the, the norms that were, that we, the, the things that we normalized in society. So very grateful for that. Um, I'm curious though, I know we're coming up on time, but about the, the work since you published this book, right? I know you were doing the book tour. Um, I wonder what the response has been we can start with like in the traditional educational space, especially in Jamaica, as people have been inviting you to come talk more about these things, to facilitate workshops and so on and so forth, or um, hasn't been much progress on that front. Yes, yes, thank you for that. Um, so two things. So progress, number one, absolutely. So I do my, I, 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 I'm not going to say I found, I'm going to say the work found me. Because remember, I'm an educator, I'm a teacher, I'm a school teacher. I did P my PhDs in leadership, policy, and diversity. So I'm all big on that. But, but the work, my gift of speaking, my gift of sharing, my gift of storytelling, though I think the work of equity, just general, found me, right? And so I've, I've gotten amazing. When I said amazing, I still get emotional because I don't want to ever... I don't want to ever come to the place where it's 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 so I'm so used to it that I kind of go okay that what whatever no, I get amazing opportunities to speak in amazing platform and spaces on the topic of on all the topic of, of, of equity but specifically to do with twist LGBTQIA plus, I have gotten tons of in, um, um, invites. Um, I just did for the TDSB year, which is the biggest school board in North America, not just in Canada. The Toronto District School Board is the largest school board, not big, largest school board in North America. I just did was a keynote at their um, student LGBTQ conference. I'm another school board in Peel region. I was their keynote. I have done tons of um, conversations have to do with Pride Toronto and other spaces. So I am I I, I have been in a lot of spaces. And what, and what I what I, what I have been in a lot, which I love, is spaces that are not quote-unquote LGBTQ spaces. So for instance, just like a city, the, you know, we have municipalities in Canada, that the city of Kitchener, the city of London, the city of Ajax, we'll just, we'll be doing a, 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 a workshop or a, a conference and they will ask me to speak and say, but we want you to speak on something to do with 2S LGBTQ IA plus issues. And so I, I get those amazing opportunities. Right now, I am I'm going to be speaking at 
one of our top university, a Western university. I am the keynote talking about um, um, twist LGBTQ issues again. And I've been there three different times to speak, um, a large, large um, platform. And again, I'm going back to that space. So I've gotten quite a bit of opportunities to do that. I also teach courses where, where LGBTQ issues are discussed um, in it. And so I get to practice my craft, exercise my voice, share my, my lived experiences, literally almost, I would say every week I have an opportunity to do that. What I would love, what I would really love is opportunity to speak home back in Jamaica. And it's important that, um, you know, I do that. You know, I'm very connected to home. I go home quite a bit. I'm sure you all know that. I am home sometimes two, three, four times for the year. I love going home. Uh, I still call Jamaica home. And I, uh, and I know how to navigate Jamaica. So I don't worry about going home because I can navigate the space, right? Um, and, that, and that's something that we have to recognize. That, that's, that's privilege that I never have. The privilege I have today, I didn't have grown up in Jamaica. So I can navigate Jamaica in, 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 in ways that I could not as a child. And because I, you know, I, I drive a car when I go home, I financially, I can afford to stay wherever I want to stay, literally. And so I can navigate those spaces as well. But I'm also a six foot four man with a certain kind of presence. I don't have to be bold and bad. My energy when I walk into a room tells you that I'm not, I'm not somebody who is going to be the least in the room. I take up space physically and emotionally. And I, I take up space. I walk into spaces and you know, me not regular, period. And that's not a boast. That's just who I am. And so those, those things make you make you understand how to navigate Jamaica more. So I would love more opportunities to do that. I have got opportunities during J, at, at, by um, um, J Flag to speak at um, 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 Pride to lots of books. So I've had that platform. I have gone back home at the Beyond Homophobia Conference twice to share. But I really, really desire to have this conversation with educators. And parents, I would, I would, I would, I would be honored to come to Jamaica to speak to principals, to educational leaders, to the to teachers, to 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 camp counselors, to parents about how to care for our students. And I'm going to tell you something, and this is very important. I make this clear. When I do these workshops and these conversations, in as an educator, you have something we call scope and sequence, which means. Based on the age group, what are you going to say and how much will you say, right? Language you're going to use. And I think a lot of people are scared when they have this conversation because they feel like somehow you're going to talk to a bunch of grade seven, grade six kids, and you're going to go into queer therapy, queer theory, and the difference between, with, between um, transgender and intersex. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not what I'm doing. One of the things that I think we forget is the foundation of belonging is what many of our students are lacking. They do not feel a sense of belonging. So when I speak in many topics about LGBTQ, my focus is how do we foster and sustain belonging in our classrooms? That's my topic. That is my topic. My topic is about inclusion begins at home. My topic is about kindness is my superpower. So those are the ways in which, because Jamaica problem I, hope, I think you realize we are not nice to each other. And I say that unapologetically. We are just not nice and warm to each other. There is a lot of niceness and kindness that we need to learn. And the way we are hostile and, 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 and rude to each other and lock it and, and you know, shut each other down is something we need to unlearn. So yes, for me, my work is not near done. As a matter of fact, my work is just starting. And I want to be that person coming home to be a part of it, to share. And, I'm, and I just want to say this. I'm not coming home as a foreigner who is disconnected from the realities of Jamaica. I have been away from Jamaica for 22 years. And in that 22 years, it has been one year because financially I could not afford to travel. One year I didn't travel. And that was, I think, was, nine, was 2001 to 2002. I did not travel. Every other year I've been home. Every single year I've been home. And so for me, I'm not dis disconnected. And I've been participating in Pride 
in Jamaica. I participated in conferences. And so it's home for me. And I believe I have something to share home and the opportunity will come. I think it will come um, and I hope it will come. So yeah, absolutely. This has, <laughs> this has certainly been a mouthful. Um, I know when the, the episode um, drops and our listeners um, hear this, there are definitely a lot of things um, to kind of think about, to reflect on. Um, and I can't thank you enough, um, Dr. Campbell. Uh, we've been trying to pin you down for quite a while now. want to thank you very much for agreeing to um, speak with us. Um, I want to thank our listeners for continuing to support the Fish Tea um, podcast. Um, thanks for thanks to um, Kareem, um, Glenn in Rwanda, um, who's going to come back and give us the the, the story um, about <laughs> the tweet. Um, <laughs> but conti continue to follow, continue to support us. We're we're at Fish Tea Podcast um, on all socials, so Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're Fish Tea Podcast at gmail.com. Um, if you want to email us any questions, comments, concerns, queries, um, give us feedback on this episode, on any episode um, that you've listened to, um, suggest topics, suggest guests um, for our next episodes. Um, and until next time, can't do it like how Glenn did it or always do it. Stay sophisticated. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>